Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. Just as a reminder for all of our episodes, while we do love interviewing people who fall far from the norm and interrogating radical ideas, we do not necessarily endorse the views of our guests on this show. In this episode, we interview Unso Joe, a PhD student in history at Stanford University. Unso's research broadly covers applications of machine learning on historical data and the ethical concerns of using sociocultural data for AI research and systems. Her paper, Lessons from the Archives, Strategies for Collecting Sociocultural Data in Machine Learning, discusses how the field of history and archives can positively influence the field of data science. Welcome to our very first bonus interview episode. Yay! All right. Yay. That's the sound of clapping in the background. We hope that you're clapping along at home. Um, so basically, here's here's the deal, <laughs> listeners. Um, so before Jess and I started this podcast, um, I had another podcast project that was going to be in the works, and I did a series of interviews with uh, various folks. Um, and again, these were solo interviews because I hadn't actually really met Jess yet. Um, and then I met Jess, and then uh, the pandemic occurred, and all these things happened out in the world. And so Jess and I are now sitting on this uh, backlog of episodes that I recorded solo. And we wanted to do something fun with them, because some of them are, are, are really cool, like this interview with Unso Joe, who, uh, as, as I mentioned in the interview, as we mentioned, um, I met at the FACT conference over in, in Barcelona this year, which was the same conference that I met uh, Jess at, actually, originally. Um, and so... So uh, we really wanted to share this episode, but weren't exactly sure how, uh, and it didn't necessarily fit our normal schedule because we want to make sure that Jess and I are both the interviewers on most of our main episodes. And so we came up with this idea for a bonus episode. Yay! Yay. Jess, you're not clapping. Yay! <laughs> so um, we're really excited to share this episode in which Unso and I, uh, Unso, as, as Jess mentioned, is a, a PhD candidate at uh, Stanford, uh, also does some work with uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru, who we're going to be releasing an episode uh, interview with later uh, this week, um, and uh, this, this coming Wednesday, actually. Um, and a lot of what we talk about in the interview is about uh, history, about archives, and about data and how we navigate ethical data. And we also talk about uh, Unso's uh, identity a little bit and her position as a, a woman and a Korean woman in the world of data and uh, tech. So um, the way that we did this episode is a little different than our normal episodes, uh, because I've already heard the episode, although I haven't heard it in a few months, and Jess has never heard the episode before. We decided to sit down and do some running commentary over the episode. And we're going to see how this goes. And we would love to hear from you if you like this format, or if this format annoys the heck out of you. Uh, so please use, uh, you know, use some nice language, some constructive criticism. Uh, but we do want to hear from you on our Twitter at RadicalAIPod. Um, Jess, is there anything you want to say about how this process was for you? Because we're recording this intro right after we just recorded our live commentary over the episode. I had a lot of fun with this process. This is the first time we've tried anything like this. And hopefully if it goes well, we can do something like this again in the future with the other backlog of episodes or maybe with other episodes that we just choose to interview people individually on once this pandemic is over and we're in person with more people, whatever it may be. 
I had a lot of fun and I hope that the listeners will enjoy this as well. One thing to address going into this interview that folks should be aware of is that um, this was like, I think like I already mentioned, one of my first interviews ever, which meant that I was still figuring out how technology worked. Um, and this is also one of the first interview, the first interview I had ever done on Zoom, uh, which means that a few times over the course of this interview, you may hear a uh, notification beep from either a text or an email that I was receiving during recording this interview because I didn't yet know how to turn them off. Uh, so I have <laughs> alleviated that and I now use, uh, you know, nice heads, headphones uh, when we record via Zoom. Um, but this was part of a learning process. So, you know, if you hear a little beep, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. That that was that was me. That, that was me, not you. Um, <laughs> so without, It's all a learning process. <laughs> it's all a learning process. Uh, but uh, we've, had, we've had enough of an intro. Um, we are so excited to share with you all this live commentary over this interview that I did months ago uh, with uh, someone who I deeply respect, Un So Jo. I'm here with Un So Jo. Un So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so I was wondering if you could start by just uh, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, where you come into this field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah, uh, I'm a PhD student in history at Stanford, and I became interested in AI through um, through textual data analysis. Um, so when I first started my program, I had a lot of historical data, and um, I was interested in using uh, methods in computational linguistics, mostly, um, to analyze how the language of the State Department changed over time. Um, and so I just, I started taking a lot of classes in AI um, and machine learning. And then I realized um, through firsthand experience how machine learning practitioners were just haphazardly using data sets um, sometimes historical data sets to train their models, um, which would then be used in um, society. And I found that alarming, and I became more interested in looking critically at the data sets that they were using. Uh, could you say a little bit more about uh, computational linguistics? Yeah. So um, I think... Computational linguistics exists as a separate field, but um, I think a lot of people are interested in text as as data. Um, so a lot, I think. Uh, so computational linguistics, as as the more specific field, they focus on so NL, natural language processing. Um, they focus on specific AI tasks like um, summarization or um, speech recognition. Um, spelling error correction, very, very specific AI tasks. Um, but a lot of the techniques that are used for those tasks are really useful for when you're doing text textual analysis. So if you're analyzing mass um, sets of um, speeches or telegrams, um, anything that has data in the form of text. Um, so that's how I became interested in in in, in um, NLP methods and applying NLP methods on historical text data. 
When you were uh, growing up, did you, was this the dream? <laughs> oh, uh, to be a historian? Um, um, I don't, I don't know if I ever wanted to be a historian as a child, um, but I liked, I liked reading and writing. Um, but I also really enjoyed math. Um, in fact, I think that I, I probably did better in math than in reading and writing um, as a child um, in school. And, um, and so I think that I had interests in both fields. Um, and so this is a good compromise, <laughs> what I'm doing now. And it's hard, to it's hard to predict what jobs there will be in the future, what, what, what um, fields would be interesting or relevant. So. I paused it. Um, so what's what's interesting to me about listening to these first uh, few questions, listening back, is that I remember where I was when I um, began this interview. So uh, basically, this was during finals time of the winter quarter uh, at the University of Denver. Um, and I was late coming out of class. Um, and so I was late coming into this interview. Um, and I ran to the library in order to find a place to record this interview over uh, Zoom with Unso. Um, and I went to about like probably 30 different small study rooms before I eventually found one in like the basement of the library. And then once I did, uh, no, the internet wouldn't work. Um, and so I ended up being like five minutes late to, to this call, um, which I felt pretty embarrassed about. And in these first few questions, um, there's definitely like a level of me still trying to figure out like recording and then also figuring out like what questions I even want to ask because I like couldn't find them at the same time. Um, and the computational linguistics question was like, a legitimate question. I had no idea what it was. And I just noticed in my in my voice, like trying to come across as if like, oh, this is just for the listeners. But really I had I had no idea what the heck we were talking about at the time. And so I really appreciated her uh, her uh, conversation there. But I was also trying to figure out, okay, where are we gonna go with this interview? Since I still couldn't find my like index card of questions that I had. Um, Jess, do you know what, like, what, is there anything that stood out to you in this first like few questions that I asked? <laughs> No, but that context definitely provides a little bit of clarity for me, for sure. I think that there's definitely no shame in needing to ask clarification questions about what someone's field of research is, because I think we actually do that quite a bit in our interviews in general, even when we do a lot of research ahead of time on what an inter or what a researcher is doing their research on and what field and discipline that they're a part of. I still don't really understand what it is most of the time on the internet until I talk to them and I have them explain everything to me. So I didn't know what computational linguistics was before this. So there's there's no shame. Do, do you know what computational linguistics is now? Yes, I can refer you to my notes <laughs> or to a nice podcast episode that details it very nicely. <laughs> do you have a dream now in terms of like when you finish the PhD program and and all of that, do you want to stay in academia or industry, or is it just all up in the air right now? Uh, so this is like exposing my, <laughs> not what I'm, <laughs> um, well, I, I do want to work in research. I don't know if it's in academia or in industry or in a think tank, whatever, or in government, um, but I do want to work in research and more so in, um, I'm less interested in, in, in particular tasks. Um, so I'm not as interested in um, trying to improve metrics 
in certain AI tasks, but more in um, critical analysis of the field um, and policy, something related to policy. Yeah, and the, and the reason I ask is is not just to uh, put your your resume on blast <laughs> in podcast form, um, but is uh, because this. I mean, as we both know, right, the field is changing so rapidly, and there's so much research that's coming out uh, right now. Um, and I was curious if you had a sense of of where, say, like your research in history and machine learning, um, whether that's going to create like new jobs in the future or, or something like that. Um, I think that uh, there is, there should be a new, in an ideal world, and and this is what my uh, paper discusses, I think that in an ideal world, there should be uh, an industry um, that is similar to being an archivist, but for data. Um, And and maybe it would just be... um, a branch of arch, 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 archival studies and and the archival industry or, or or the library industry, but I think that there need to there needs to be um, a professional network of people who collect data um, and as and have that as a job because data is so important, um, and I think that's a type of job that I I in an ideal world will be created. Um, for people who have language expertise, for um, with cultural expertise, um, anthropologists, people with backgrounds like that, I think that they could contribute to um, data collection and preservation. And that's and that's why um, that's why we wanted to invite you to be on the show. So I, I just for full disclosure, we met originally at the uh, FAT now. F-A-C-C-T, the FACT conference uh, in, yeah. in Barcelona, which is about fairness, accountability, and transparency in uh, machine learning. And uh, you were presenting a paper that you just referenced um, about archives and machine learning. Could you tell us a little bit more about that paper? Yeah, so the, the paper was inspired by a call um, within the machine learning community for some structure and guidelines for how um, data could be collected because um, some surveys had shown that it was called, you know, it was the Wild West. There was no, there was no regulation, um, no guidelines for how data should be collected to feed um, these AI models. And um, so we brainstormed fields that we could draw from. And, and one field is um, the archives and the libraries. And we... I think that we tend to underestimate libraries, but really they contain a lot of social sociocultural information. They they sort of they literally house a lot of sociocultural information, especially if it's language, you know, text text data. Um, and I think the first draft of Google was actually called the Digital Library, or something of that sort. The Stanford Digital Library Initiative, I think. Um, so. So there's a lot we can draw from a field that has been dedicated to collecting data for thousands of years. And we try to come up with very specific strategies. And then we thought, well, all of these things vary depending on, you know, who you're addressing, the tasks that you're working on. Um, But what what we can draw from are um, the structures and policies and the language and concepts related to data collection. Um, 
so we came up with, with you know, uh, some, uh, a few strategies and we put them into categories that are relevant to concepts that um, uh, machine learning fairness people uh, like to bring up. So things like um, consent, diversity, inclusion, um, and ethics. Um, so so they're, uh, they're related to policies and institutional infrastructures. Dylan, I'm realizing on this note of not knowing things, <laughs> I'm realizing that I don't know what an archivist does because I thought that an archivist does work with data, but she said an archivist, but for data. What is an archivist? <laughs> so it, it may surprise you, Jess, but we get into that quite shortly. Oh. I think, if I remember correctly from a few months ago, I think that we answered this question exactly. Um, then let me, uh, let me hit that play button then. Okay, I'm excited to find out. Can I just say that in the past section, um, probably one of my finest points in interviewing anyone ever is using the term, you don't have to put your resume on blast or not to put your resume on blast in like a formal interview <laughs> with like a colleague. Like that's something that you should never do. And after I, after it left my mouth, I was like, uh oh, <laughs> shouldn't have done that. Uh, anyway, one of my finest moments. So specifically with uh, working in archives, which you're, uh, you know, as you say, has uh, the libraries and archives have been around for a, a long time, <laughs> for for a lot of, uh, of of human history, at least more, I guess, modern human history. Um, what are some of those uh, lessons, or how has uh, machine learning um, impacted that work in archives? There are lessons that we can draw. Lessons that machine the machine learning community can draw from archives, um, which is more um, things like how can we set guidelines for um, set and impose and um, hold people accountable for collecting data. Um, and then and then there are also things that the library community can learn from the machine learning community about um, applying AI techniques on sorting through documents or OCRing technology. Um, so there's a lot of um, benefit to go around both ways. <laughs> um, yeah, could you say more about uh, some of those like mutual benefits between the those two fields of, I guess, history and, and archives and computer science? So I think, well, so let's to start with the history side, the his, history and the archive side, um, there's so much more information in digital format today that it's just impossible to ignore computational methods. Um, and not just because they're available and now you can do it, but because it, we're sort of at almost an epi epistemological um, change in the field for at least history and art and archives, it's 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 a different story. But um, because now you have access to all the you know potentially all the data on this that ever existed, and, and you know there's some bias about what exists and what survived or not. But um, and. Now you can search through so many more documents than you know a, a traditional historical method would have allowed you a hundred years ago if you just walk into an archive and and, and sort through analog, um, you know, hard hard copy papers, um, and so now we have to address that. Even if you're not using computational methods, the, you have to address the philosophical questions about 
what it means when you have access to all the all of the sources re related to this um, from that archive. Um, so that's from the his from from the history perspective. For archives, a lot of it is related to OCRing technology or tech other technologies related to um, digitization and different forms of digitization. So if it's um, hard copy text, then you might OCR that, and then it would um, transform your image text into um, you know text that you can work with on your computer. Uh, can you uh, can you define OCR uh, for us? Yeah, oh, uh, I think it's I think it stands for optical character recognition. So it's when you have um, uh, you know a like a receipt. So you might receive a receipt from Safeway. And then if you OCR that, then you can actually get the digits um, or the or the characters into um, computer recognized format. Um, so like if you were if you were typing it on your computer. Um, and then there's other forms like, um, you know, speech recognition. So maybe you have a bunch of speeches um you know or oral histories um that are archived from people who lived through a certain time um with um interesting experiences and then you could you can make you can generate script with that so um you know like as as, as if you would get subtitles in a movie um and then you could do analysis on that um or, or even um, pictures, maybe they're photographs, um, rolls of photographs from uh, some archive, and you can um, you can scan those, and then they would become image data, um, and even videos. So there's a lot of data um, that could benefit from a lot of um, developments in AI technology. You know, Dylan, this is really interesting to hear. First, because I have no idea pretty much anything that goes on in the archivist and historian community. So just hearing what happens in the life of an archivist is interesting. But also uh, hearing both sides of the coin is this is not something I've thought about before. I think that I always like to think say that machine learning and AI technology should be informed by other disciplines, but I don't always have an answer as to which disciplines or in what way it can be informed. And I've never thought about how uh, archives can inform data set curation for, for machine learning. I think this is super important because a lot of people who are in like the data science community, they tend to recreate the wheel sometimes. And when we're doing stuff like trying to collect data from the world, if we recreate the wheel and we try to do that without any guidance at all from historians or from archivists, then that seems like it could be super harmful. I'm actually really surprised I haven't heard of this before um, hearing about Unso's work. I think that's a great point, especially because even like for us on the show, so often we're like, yeah, we need to bring the humanities into technology, like into these technology spaces. And I don't know if we're always as explicit as we could be about either case studies in which it's happened and it's been effective, or like specifically what humanities disciplines, or at least how those humanities disciplines might intersect with computer science in a positive way. And I think Unso's work and this paper that we've been referring is a great case study for a very specific way that that intersection can be very fruitful. Yeah, and it's interesting because she talks about both sides of the coin. Like I would have just thought that 
the historians should be informing data scientists and machine learning engineers. But it's interesting that she's also explaining how AI technology can be useful for historians as well when they're digitizing all of these really like archaic documents and big corpuses of text, corpi of text. I don't know what the plural of corpuses is. Corpi. (laughs) A lot of text. (laughs) When you first said corpuses, I I heard heard porpoises. Uh, with with a P, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think we've talked about whales quite yet, but maybe we'll keep listening and find out. Also, we're running out of time for me as a naive interviewer to ask what an archivist is and what an archivist does, because that's the question I should have asked at the very beginning of this interview. And we're going to see if eventually I get to ask that question or not. Uh, I might have forgotten at this point. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, it it's almost sounds like I know when you read articles about like big data, um, generally you're talking about either like in telecommunications or image recognition or facial recognition. Um, but it almost sounds like we've entered this uh, time of big data in archives as well, where because of some of this technology, we have a new way of looking at the same data. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's I, I think that's fair to say. And I think that there's a little bit of a I think that some historians uh they were, I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to reference anyone in particular, but I think there were some people who were, who were sensationalizing this idea that, um, you know, AI is taking over archives, AI is taking over how historians are releasing information, choosing to release information and hide information, redacting documents and things like this. Um, but even some, even the most basic things, um, like recognizing whether this is a G or a C, that is AI technology. Um, and I don't know if there's any particular egregious human bias involved in that. <laughs> so so there, there, I think that there's a lot of press surrounding um, problems of AI and human bias. But some of the some of the things, some of the techniques that people do work on are so fundamental and unrelated to, uh, you know, any social biases that you can, I think that you can use um, technologies like OCR um, without particular um, problems. And you already mentioned a few of um, ethical considerations, at least in archives, where you're even talking about, you know, what uh, pieces of history were allowed to survive and then maybe even just naturally yeah. um, survived. Could you talk about uh, more about that in particular? Yeah. So there are a couple forms of biases um, that go into this, and I, I don't, I, I, I think that other people probably have worked on this in in a more thorough manner than I have. But um, the most obvious are things like um, if you're taking historical data, you're taking data that represents what was the norm in the past. And that norm may not be what's acceptable today um, or what we want to replicate in the future. So for instance, the fact that we don't have, we historically have never had a female president um, doesn't mean that that data should inform our future. and you know it's a it's it's a political and philosophical debate there um but that's an example of how um certain distributions of data from the past um can 
influence um, how data sets make predictions or how models make predictions. And there's there's almost a parallel there between uh, machine learning algorithms and archives where uh, sometimes it's described that they're both objective, right? So like history is this objective thing and machine learning, well, you know, the algorithm was just doing what the algorithm did and it's yeah. just totally objective. Um, but it, it sounds like one of your critiques is that uh, there isn't, there needs to be more context in that. Yes, um, there needs to be context and there needs to be more supervision in the data that's being collected in, in the process of collection. Um, because I think that most reasonable people would agree that some of these data sets, if they had seen the distribution of, of, of you know, what's what's included and what's not, would, are, you know, would agree that there are some egregious problems. Um, so, so I think the problem right now is that there's not enough attention um, put into the collect, the collect, the data collection process. Often it'll just be a grad student um, who scrapes uh, a website <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and with as much data as they can collect as possible. That is, you know, that seems uniform on, on some measure. Um, so, so more attention needs to be um, allotted there. So how, do you have any uh, specific suggestions of how to, um, I guess, operationalize ethics in that? Yeah, so we actually made a recommendation in our paper. Um, one of them is to have a professional membership system for data collection um, and potentially even promote data collection as a full-time career, just as archivists are. Um, and we're not saying arch- archives are perfect and, you know, they have problems too. And it was just, I think, in the Washington Post recently about how they had um, altered one of the images and, and that had become a, a political issue. Um, but we can learn from how they have allocated resources to collecting data um, and then collecting information. Um, so something like a prof- professional membership system would force people to answer to not just their direct boss, um, who is often, you know, a profit-seeking company, um, but they have their membership, their professional membership tied to um, an external organization that sort of oversees all of it um, so that they can't cut corners. <laughs> so a way to standardize it almost. Yeah, so so to have, have a standardized, a standardized uh, codes of ethics beyond the level of their direct employers. Yeah, it's it, it gets into that murky water then about uh, you know regulation. Yeah, it's always yeah. So it's not, and I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it works perfectly in, in archives either. And so these are just ideas and, and 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 the language to talk about it. I think to to figure it out. Yeah, well, I I know you have some experience uh, in industry as as well. At least researching in industry. I'm wondering if these ideas, if you um, have gotten the chance to to test them out or to hear any feedback. Um, from folks in industry about, say, a membership system? This one in particular is newer. (laughs) So uh, I haven't, uh, we haven't really, I think that we are working on this um, and we're looking forward to how this will be implemented and how the details will be hashed out. One thing that I've heard about um, just in computer science and in in articles about data and about 
uh, big data is just uh, there seems to be that that fear, and it, the fears are varied, right? From what you suggested, which is that um, you know. Maybe it's not even fear, but what you suggested and like the excitement of like, well, this is going to transform the entire industry of archives to the fear yeah. element of, well, it's going to take the archivist's job. Um, and I'm wondering if there are other, I guess, like uh, myths versus realities that you deal with as an archivist and a historian working in machine learning that you could highlight for us. Yeah, I think that there is a general fear of machine learning in general uh, about how it'll take jobs from people. Um, and so I have other thoughts about it in general, but I think in specifically about archives and, and um, history, I don't, I think it'll be a really, really, really long time and a lot of um, uh, uh, dedication to the field of history in AI, which I don't know what, I don't know what would motivate that, but um, for, AI to take jobs from historians <laughs> um, because it's it's mostly a, a it's it's such a humanistic profession, um, but I can see how archivists or librarians may have that fear of being replaced. Um, so I think that certain tasks like checking out books or making book recommendations um, can be aided with AI. Um, but I think I think that it would be kind of uh, circular and self-replicating if AI acted as the archivist, <laughs> because the whole point of um, our paper and 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 sort of the work that we're doing in machine learning is to promote more human supervision in um, archival in in collecting data sets for training AI. So, so I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but I can see because a lot of repetitive jobs with, with seemingly repetitive tasks, um, I think would be the first to go if, if this happens. This is such an important point. This is something that I think is so important for all data science and machine learning engineers and anyone who's involved in anything AI related needs to just nail down over and over and over again. The fact that if we use historical data to make models, that data is never objective and it's always going to have some sort of bias, which is always going to be incorporated into the model, which will end up recreating the history in the future. I think that is so important. And something that I would like to add to this note too, um, that I don't know if Unso is planning on getting into, but um, when she was talking about historical data in general being a norm of the past, I think it's also important to bring up the fact that sometimes the bias of the data is the fact that there's just missing data in general. And this is something that I found to be really, really prevalent in countries that don't have good data collection practices. When I was working in South America for a little while and trying to help the government promote more open data, the fact was just that there wasn't really data out there to be open about with the community and with the public. And so we wanted to use data to help create awesome tools with machine learning and with AI and to help create transparency and get rid of corruption, things like that. But we couldn't because there just wasn't data there. And so the, the lack of data 
also creates a bias in these models too. The language that you used there was very interesting. There's not, I think you said there's not good data collection and the word, the word good there and like putting a value on it, I think is, is really interesting. Cause even, I mean, you're coming from a very particular uh, context or value system where you're using data for a particular means, which hopefully is like making a more equitable world for everyone. Um, whereas like a concept of like effective data collection for an authoritarian regime uh, might look very, very different. Um, and which I think is part of the point that Unso is getting at, which is just that data is inseparable from, and especially data collection and data use are inseparable from the political and socioeconomic systems uh, surrounding it. And um, I, I think it's a great point that you're making about like, well, what, how do we define you know, good data and good data collection, especially if we, you know, take for granted the old cliche that uh, history is is written by the victors, right? Uh, which is the history of, you know, colonization, all that. So if we're dealing with historical data, how do we separate that? Is there such thing as good data or is this just like the data that we're given? That's true. This is making me wonder why I was never taught about good quote unquote data collection practices in my data science classes as an undergraduate student. I think that maybe every single data science person or uh, educator that is planning on teaching data science should probably incorporate something about uh, archives into their into their classes. <laughs> this seems really important. Uh, I just I want to bring up um, what this conversation is making me think about uh, today. So we're recording this uh, what the days on um, May 29th. So a few days before this episode will come out, and um, in, we're in the midst of a very interesting dialogue happening uh, between the office of the president of the United States and uh, Twitter and Facebook um, right now and what it means for social media, uh, which in a certain sense is, is an archive of, of, some, of some way, some electronic archive, uh, what it means for Twitter to mark the president's tweets as sensitive or as non-factual. Um, and one of the things that Unso was referencing earlier was when the National Archives uh, digitally altered a picture of the 2017 uh, Women's March. Um, altered some of the things that were said on the signs, especially that were critical of uh, the president, um, and some pictures of female anatomy, they altered it. Um, and uh, it's interesting to think about this conversation in light of what is happening right now and in light of the changing archives of our lives. Um, and again, this concept of truth and, and post-truth and who controls the truth. So even when it's like, part of my, uh, you know, more, more liberal politic, um, it's, it's interesting uh, to, to think about that. Like, is it possible to get an archive that is the truth as is, in the same way like an algorithm, right? An algorithm, the truth as is, reflecting the world as it is. And I don't, I don't necessarily believe that it is. Yeah, is such that's just really a live interesting. I think right it all now, just brings to light the this. fact that there's just so much power sitting with this. So the people who collect the data hold all the power, the people who curate and clean the data hold all the power, the people who use the data and feed it into the model and train the model and tune the model, they hold all the power. And uh, there's a lot of harm that can come from that power if it's not distributed equally and if it's not acknowledged that, you know, it can be harmful. And, and I think that's just... It's so relevant right now. You're you're so right. Just did you know that one of the fastest growing industries right now, especially for 
academics uh, is in archives and museums. And that's a really curious fact uh, for me to think about. Like, why? Why, why now? Like for a lot of our colleagues who are getting their doctorates, a lot of them are going to end up working in museums. And it's because there are jobs in museums to like an unprecedented degree. Like there are more museums opening this year than there have been in the past like 70 years or something crazy like that. Um, and I, I wonder about that. Like I wonder what the, that cultural um, consciousness is. Like wh why are we... Why are we doing that? Is it because of the technology that we have now? Is it because of like a new interest in preserving the past? And like, what does that mean for how the past is going to be preserved? And like, who gets to make those decisions? I, I just, I'm thinking a lot about that as I plan my own maybe, career. <laughs> maybe there's just more data to be collected and curated and put into museums and to analyze. I, I don't know, this is complete speculation, but perhaps that could be one reason. Perhaps. Very interesting. Yeah. Let's throw it back to Unso. My sense, and, and you're in the field, so let me know if this is wrong, is that not a lot of people know what an archivist does <laughs> in a day-to-day -day oh, basis. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering if, um, I think there's like a lot of assumptions that are made with like, what happens at a library or what happens in an archive? And is there a difference yeah. between the two? And I'm wondering if you could just uh, break down those distinctions. I did it, Jess. <laughs> I did it. I, I asked the golden, the golden question, question I should have asked about 22 and a half minutes ago uh, about what an archivist does. I finally got there. So you will finally get your answer you, about what an archivist does. And I will too. Yeah, so I think there are many different types of archivists, but um, when we talk about the archivists, we sort of mean the people who um, collect primary source information, and that would be for us data. So there's a lot of parallels. So um, if you're an archive, um, you might, it, depending on the type of archive, but um, you know, a modern academic archive, for instance, um, you might get collections. Um, so someone might have um, a lot of primary source documents and which in our case is, is data. Um, and um, they and those documents may be evaluated or appraised for their value um, and then become part of the collection. Um, in our case would be the data set. Um, and so that's what an archivist does. They, they, they evaluate um, collections, they appraise materials, um, they determine whether this is worth um, keeping in our collection. Um, and and so, so that's the human element um, that we think is needed in in the data collection process that we can learn from. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, um, so if you if you break down some of the humanness in there, it would be um, making some sort of judgments, like even if you think about appraisal, there's some sort of value system that you're working on. And your sense is that that's not something that machine learning um, could do completely. Oh, you mean evaluate documents? Uh, perhaps, yeah, just... Um, what what is I guess the question is like what is that human element that you're pointing to um, that would need to be oh, done in partnership with AI as opposed to like being replaced by AI? Yeah, so I think because AI is trained on on data sets, um, you need to have data that are that have been collected under high under certain uh, supervision because especially if it's sociocultural data and um, those data sets currently are not under 
any and often any type of supervision they're kind of just um automatically scraped you know a grad student sits there over the weekend and then scrapes it um from the from somewhere on the internet um and and there's not even really much discussion about how how those decisions were made um when it was scraped what you know if it followed a certain format or um structure um so so we're the bigger i guess the 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 general the subfield of data collection within machine learning we're encouraging we're pushing people to be more critical about their data sets um not just because of the ethics component but because it actually it actually helps with understanding the function and performance of ai models too <laughs> i have so many thoughts about this <laughs> First, I have to just completely agree with what Unso just said uh, in that data sets are everything. And if you use a broken data set, then you're going to build a broken model. So it's in every data scientist's best interest to try to have the best, quote unquote, now I'm going to catch myself using that word every time I use it, but to have the best data that you can have. But what I was really interested in, in this last part of the conversation was this idea that certain humans who are in the loop, starting with the archives, but then also with technology, are making a call, which is basically a value judgment, about what data is valued in these archives and what data is worth keeping in the collection. And it's interesting viewing that from a historical perspective, where I'm sure that People who have been trained for years and collaborating with big teams will make these large decisions that are, you know, um, checked off by many different people along the process. But when it comes to online data collection, I'm sure the process is much different and much more vague and not standardized, as you guys were talking about before. And also, there's just so much more data to be collected in so many different communities and it's being collected by so many different organizations, there's not really any source of truth. And every company that collects its own data can just do whatever it wants in terms of data collection. So there's just so many unknowns. There's just so much ambiguity when it comes to digital data, but there's so much more data out there. So it's, it's like bad in both aspects. I mean, it's good that there's more data, but it's bad that there's zero standardization. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so... It's just so complex. What um, what's easy? What's sometimes easy as an academic is just to say, "God, that that was wrong." <laughs> like what you did there, the decisions that you made about the data you collected and then used, and how you used it, those decisions were bad. Those decisions were wrong. And I can write like so many pages <laughs> about how those things are bad, and that's important, right? It's important to critique. And sometimes I think I forget that to a certain degree, decisions have to be made. Now, they don't have to be made the same way that decisions are made. Um, and what Unso's uh, really suggesting in a very specific way, right, that we have more specific supervision of, of who's in the loop and when they're in the loop and the decisions being made of a human in the loop um, is, all, is all really important. But for these technologies to come about, like sometimes you, just, you do have to make a decision about what data you're gonna use and what data you're not gonna use. You can't use all the data all of the time. Um, and every time you make that decision, it is such a fundamentally political decision that has far-reaching ramifications um, uh, downstream about who it impacts, what voices are being included, et cetera, everything that Unso is saying. Uh, it's just 
as and as you're saying, right? It's just it's so complex. Um, it's and I don't know if there's a I don't know if there's a right way or a good way to do it. Maybe it's just a way to do it that is not as bad as another way. <laughs> Right? It's like a harm reduction strategy for data. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it's also all about that transparency, right? Whether there's a right or a wrong way, it doesn't matter as long as we address the fact that whatever decision we make isn't going to be perfect and we can be transparent about it. So everybody understands that too. Right. And this is why I actually think it's really important um, to give a shout out to uh, to Timnit, to Timnit Gebru, who w- was co-authored on this paper that we've been talking about with Unso, um, because part of Timnit's work has been the uh, data sheets for data sets initiative and making sure that there is greater transparency in that work, in how you know models work and, and data being uh, taken in. So we'll include that, a link to that also in the, um, show notes for this, but I think that the work that Timnit is doing and, and her team is doing about uh, data sheets for that transparency in models is really important in this conversation too. Um, so, and you're also coming from a very particular, you know, socio-political um, context um, as a Korean woman doing this work. I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about how that may be shaping your research or shaping your journey in this world of uh, machine learning. Yeah, um, I, I think that uh, when I first started, um, when I first started looking at looking at um, data science and computational methods for historical data, I was more interested in the techniques and um, the methods. Uh, and then I just from my exposure to the culture and the people um, in that field, I began to see that your the personal also has a big impact on not just your experience but the the science that gets created the information that gets generated from these labs um you know and i think for me uh my gender played a big role in seeing a different aspect of science um and that made me realize um and in this in this case in particular i saw how data sets could be collected differently um, but I'm sure in other aspects, it's true. Um, I, I, and, and I'm sure that in other aspects, um, people can see how, you know, gender or race can play a part in how science is shaped. Um, uh, and I just saw that science isn't as, you know, objective or isn't as um, straightforward as first principles. Um, and that's how I became more interested in the socio-technical aspect of uh, data science. Data science. Mm-hmm. And part of that is probably the uh, representation, too, of, of who's at the table to make those calls is what goes into the archives and also what gets studied in machine learning. Right. Um, and the agenda that um, people follow. Um, so, yeah, it starts from the policy, or it, well, it starts from the idea, and then it trickles down to the policy, and then the implementation. And so, I think in all of those aspects, it's uh, uh, the the personal, and then the social and the cultural elements play a role. And uh, technology, and especially um, artificial intelligence product development, say in in Silicon Valley or uh, Boulder, next to where uh, where I am. Um, has definitely gotten a, a rap um, of being a boys club and being uh, 
predominantly white. Um, and as much as you're comfortable sharing, it, has that been kind of your experience? Like, have you been welcomed as a woman into that community? Yeah, I think that the gender ratio at Stanford is a little bit better. Um, I think, I don't know the exact numbers. And, and you know, I, I hear the numbers, but they actually honestly look different in practice anyway. So I don't know if the numbers really matter for, for, um, um, for people's actual experiences. But um, I would say sometimes I think a lot of the biases are subconscious. I don't think, I think that most people, um, if, they knew that this, you know, is harmful for the community or 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 their students. I don't think that um, they would intentionally be malicious. Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's just culture or um, something that they're used to. So maybe um, some people are just more used to seeing um, certain types of people in that community. And so um, they replicate that without thinking. Um, so, um, but I, I think part, I think the difficulty is for, for women, um, maybe that it's harder to find, uh, some um, engineering is difficult. And so you have to, a lot of it, you learn from your peers. Um, and you know, you might go to office hours or ask your professor, but a lot of the learning comes from trying and failing with your peers. And sometimes um, your peers may be of a different gender and, and, you know, and maybe they're less inclusive. I don't know, not always, but, um, and I think that's probably the biggest hurdle for women. I mean, that question of of diversity comes up all the time. And when I talk to um, folks in industry, there's generally like a, a desire to have more diversity on coding teams and research teams and, and things like that. And then they run into this issue where when they get that diversity, um, there isn't necessarily already the culture there to welcome that diversity and to uh, okay, maintain yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you have any uh, any solutions <laughs> to the, the issue of diversity yeah, in the workplace. Yeah, I think I've seen that too, where, um, where not just gender, but any diversity higher, um, you know, it's kind of like a stopgap measure because it, it, it solves like a, a PR crisis, maybe. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, well, we have 20% women now, 30% women now. Um, and, and so I think that's why the numbers are really nice because then it doesn't, you know, it seems to be a really nice argument um, to use, but it doesn't necessarily mean the culture itself has changed. I think that there are a lot of moves now. I think there's definitely a lot of invest, or maybe not investment, but funding going into um, more diversity, academic intellectual diversity in computer science and AI. Um, so I think the data science initiative is one of them. And then I think in some schools, there's, um, you know, interdisciplinary AI, um, these types of initiatives. Um, and I, I think it probably, I think probably they face similar problems with, um, hiring women to have the, you know, have the gender be 25%, (laughs) um, without changing the culture. Um, so I'm actually also part of the, the Stanford data science Institute. And, um, so I am, one of the few humanists in the group. Um, 
And I think that it it will take time um, for people to be more open to, um, well, one, being more critical um, about their data sets and understanding that science is a human um, endeavor and that there are human biases in every step. Um, so to understand, to be open to, to those criticisms. As we uh, move towards wrapping up, um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts that you would give to students or to learners in archives or AI, maybe particularly uh, women who are starting out in that field, uh, just general advice that you might have. I think that my advice for women in the field <laughs> in, in STEM um, would be to persevere <laughs> and to support each other. Um, and then for historians um, and other humanists, I would say um, I think it's it's very important when we do research to try to find its relevance to the present world um, and and to and to read the news and you know because sometimes I think when I first started in in my program I I was so um, razor focused on on historical questions that I wasn't paying attention to how this could be relevant to uh, modern issues and so I think um, this is potentially a problem more for historians than other humanists for for other humanists so um, so I think it's important to try to find. Um, how we can use our knowledge for social good. Unso, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. So Jess, that was my interview with Unso Jo, um, and one of the first interviews that I ever did. What did you think? Congratulations, you've grown so much since then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I thought I thought about, you know, 15 minutes in, I think I hit my stride. There were some good questions there. Let's offend myself a little bit. No, it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think Unso's work is really interesting to me. And I always love hearing about disciplines that can really help inform and help the field of AI and machine learning and archives and history is one that I have honestly never really thought about, but I don't know why, because I think that it's honestly probably one of the most important fields and disciplines that could inform machine learning and data science practices. I, I don't know how I've not heard about this before, but I'm very glad to to now be uh, informed about Unso's work. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny listening back, um, just like all the technical glitches and all of the like different ways that I know I recorded it wrong and and all the stuff um, that I, that I I know will probably show up also in the in the final <laughs> that we release here. Um, just how how far I've come in such a short amount of time. Um, but also, it's amazing to me like how much it betrays what I was reading at the time, which uh, I was working up a lot on this like white accountability and tech spaces work, especially around representation um, and especially reading the AI Now uh, 2019 report, which I, I've uh, we've referenced before in our conversation with Sarah Myers-West, uh, who's a postdoc over there, and then uh, also was reading a whole lot of Timnit. Uh, Gebru. Um, and so uh, like a, a lot about representation and that just came out like in every single question I asked, like every question I asked was like a leading question about representation. Like, tell me more. Uh, mostly I want to hear what you say, but also I'm writing a paper about this right now. So help me, help me orient <laughs> what, what I'm doing in your experience. Um, but it's, it's really, um, it's really cool looking back on um, the work that Unso is doing uh, 
it's just, it's such, it's interesting to interview people at different stages of their career um, and to see how they answer questions differently based on their experience and, and what disciplines that they um, straddle. And I just think this was such a um, cool experience to interview someone who is still doing you know, their doctoral work at Stanford in California at this time and place who is straddling being a historian and archivist and then uh, this discipline of, of computer science. Um, it's just such a particular snapshot of, of this work in this world that I don't know if we always get a chance to see. So uh, I enjoyed listening back on it, even if there are definitely some things that I would have changed. <laughs> well, Dylan, it's also a snapshot of you and your work too, right? It's a snapshot of, of learning how to become a public scholar. And that's what this podcast is for both of us as well. Well, let's, I, so, okay, I like that. that is there, there's a form and function element here where, like, this is also part of an archive that we're creating, right? Like, <laughs> That's so meta. <laughs> it's so meta, but it's, it's, it's right, right? It's like, and the choices that we're making, we're creating data based off of the questions that we ask versus the questions we don't ask, right? That's so true. We are data curators, and our questions are political and the way that we disseminate people's research is also political. This is actually really important. I read a paper about this earlier this week. It's in the Kai conference. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it's about disseminating news in or in research uh, in HCI news. That's something along the lines of that for the title. I'm sorry, I just butchered the title for whoever so that's the author is. HCI being human computer interaction. Yes. And in this paper, they talk about how people who interview HCI researchers are actually at a lot of risk of spreading misinformation because the way that you choose to interview someone can actually be political and you can ask questions that have an agenda behind them. It's exactly along the lines of this. So as an interviewer, we are archivists, we're curating and we are disseminating information to people and we're making value judgments and choices along the lines of how we conduct our interviews and how we, um, share this information with other people. So maybe this is a good check for us as well, too, to make sure that we're trying to stay as neutral as we possibly can, or at least being transparent about our process. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I really believe that neutrality is impossible. And I believe that every question <laughs> we, act, we ask is a political act. Um, it's something that I carry around in, in my in my ministry too. It's like every sermon I give is is political. Every like form of persuasion for me, like it's it's a political act. And I don't mean that in terms of like uh, we're supporting the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or whatever. Like it's not uh, rooted in that necessarily. But by political, I mean like it's rooted in power. Like every question we're asking means we're not asking a million other questions, which means we're curating information, which means we're making a statement. So that's this that's has my to be soapbox. The <laughs> most meta conversation that we've ever had about conversations that we're having about conversations that you've had. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps it is, uh, and perhaps we should save the rest of this conversation um, for our possible future uh, meta minisode, uh, where we talk about the episode that talks about the episode that talked about the episode of something that was recorded. <laughs> That's right, I talked about my interview. Um, but uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, we do invite you to, of course, follow along. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Radical AI Pod and to check out the show notes for this episode, including um, reference to Unso's uh, article uh, that we talked about a lot in this episode and other articles that we have talked about as well. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. stay meta-radical. You can be radical about your radicality. Right? It's too much. It's too much. It's it's too (laughs) radical. That's that's the line. We crossed the line. Too too meta. Too far. (laughs) I got lost. (laughs) I'm I'm in radicality inception right now.